0: This is Structure, the podcast. I'm Sam Ward. And I'm Michelle Rose. We talk
1: to the designers and minds behind the most creative products in the outdoor industry.
0: Our guest today is designer Trent Bush, and we're really looking forward to sharing his interview with you. Trent talks about the influence of early skate culture on snowboarding and what it's like to build a brand around a lifetime obsession. Growing up in the 70s and 80s, Trent witnessed the boom days of snowboarding and was able to parlay his love of the sport into a lifetime career. With his brother and childhood friend, he founded the brand Twist and grew that company to become the number two brand in snowboarding. Later, he joined Burton to continue his design practice and gain experience working for the industry leader. We talked with Trent about building a brand from scratch witnessing the birth of a new culture, and how pushing yourself is essential to a flourishing design career. Let's get right to it. Trent, welcome to The Structure Podcast. Thank you very much.
1: Welcome. We're really happy to have you here.
0: Glad to be here. So how did you get started snowboarding?
2: You know, I grew up in Boulder, Colorado, and and uh, fell into skateboarding but also skiing we were always trying to skateboard on snow ourselves we were always taking boards with no trucks we were wheels we were um standing up on sleds doing the whole thing And, and i think my my good friends uh his neighbor had a snowboard, had a yellow uh, Sims Lonnie Toft um, <laughs> board thing with the skateboard mounted on top, and that was something that you know. Once we kind of saw that and heard about snowboarding, it, it just was something that I sort of became enamored by and just had to figure it out.
1: When did you actually start skateboarding?
2: I mean, in the in the seventies for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember actually vividly my my first skateboard deck that was a legit deck was a uh, Z-Flex J-Adams, which is sort of like, you know, that iconic board. Now I still have it. I've carried it around my my whole life, literally. Hang
1: on to that. yeah, I, yeah Absolutely.
2: Sure. It was weird because Kryptonics, I don't know if you know Kryptonics mm-hmm. wheels, yeah. but they were out of Boulder of all things. They had started it out as, um, I guess, making... Uh, urethane wheels for mine carts but then somebody said "Ah, oh, you could probably make skateboard wheels so was there, there was this weird skate culture in in boulder of all places one of the kids that we grew up with his dad worked at kryptonics so he made a turned his room into a skateboard uh store like a skate yeah. shop exactly <laughs> so after the j adams and, and all that early stuff then kryptonics kind of kind of took over and then uh, all of that culture at that point Snowboarding was such a new thing, and and it really was born out of the skate mentality, surf mentality too. But in in where I was, it was definitely more of a sort of a skate driven mentality.
1: Yeah, we have to remember too. I mean, skateboarding. You know, if you look back at Dogtown and Z Boys and all that stuff that Stacy Peralta has put out there, um, that that was still relatively new then too. Mm-hmm. It was just picking up steam in the early seventies, mid seventies, and so pretty short. You know, run time from frame, yeah. for for that. I mean, when we were kids, that felt like a long time. You look at it now, it's like a couple of years, three, four years. Oh uh, no, yeah, it
2: wasn't it wasn't that long at all. But it was just, the, you know, culture was changing in general yeah. at that point so much, yeah. and that 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 short time frame was changing real fast. And there was a there was a skate park in Boulder and. Um, we, my brother and I, and, and a bunch of friends, you know, really got deeply ingrained and in sort of into skate culture. And we were really young. I mean, seventy-seven. I was seven years old. It wasn't like I was, this, you know, huge skateboard guy or whatever. I was, I was literally a kid. Um, but it was just something that, that I don't know what it was. I just loved every, yeah, every every second of it. The cultural side of skateboarding, you know, from music to art to. Fashioned whatever. I mean, that was kind of what ruled.
1: You know, growing up, I grew up in California, mm-hmm. and skateboarding was really big. You know, and roller skating and whatnot. Snowboarding, you know, especially growing up in the Bay Area, that wasn't a big thing for us because we weren't around snow unless you went up to the mountains yeah, a lot, sure. and um, so that didn't really seem to come into our mentality. You know, for those of us who are always kind of hanging out in the sun uh, until we were much older, but. You know, so to me, it always felt like snowboarding came on a little later, but um, snowboarding's actually been around longer than that. It's
2: been a yeah a long time, and, and for us, it was it was just a natural extension of, of skateboarding because you couldn't snowboard at, at ski areas. Yeah, they wouldn't let you up, or the equipment didn't work anyway. There was no there were no edges or anything like that, and so for us, especially living right in Boulder. We just hiked the foothills right around town. Like there's the Flatirons, which is kind of the famous mountain formation in Boulder. So anytime it snowed, we'd just get our dad to drive us up to Chautauqua and we'd hike and ride powder. It was great. You know, we still go up there.
1: Can you tell us a little bit what the uh, snowboard culture was like?
2: It was really interesting because there were so few people. Uh, you, You know, it was the sort of insider club. We were lucky a lot of our friends had older brothers or whatever that were really into it and so we would hitch rides up to Loveland Pass or Berthid Pass. There are switchbacks on the on the roads that go up. Mm-hmm. So you could you know, hitch ride in the back of a truck literally and and ride down and, and just keep doing that sort of all day long. And there were a lot of guys, Kevin Delaney, Brian Delaney, Dave Dowd, Tim Wendell, I mean all these guys that were local boulder guys and, and they were more than willing to sort of take the kids up. That's so great
0: when you have people like that who are just so into it and and supportive of people doing it, you know, that that they facilitate in that way.
2: Oh yeah. Oh, for sure. Again, because it sort of came out of the the, uh, skate culture side. And we also, we had a a half pipe, um, not in our backyard, but in the backyard that backed up to us, which was great. And uh, this guy, Joe Johnson, who was a a pro skater out of Colorado was good friends with like Kevin Staub and, and so like you know Bones Brigade guys would come like people would literally come through yeah. and like session the ramp and I would sit there in my window and watch these guys he would have these crazy sessions yeah. and so it was really you know it was really a, a really really cool time and through that sort of skateboarding side the skate shops started or one of the skate shops which is actually Bob's Toys and Hobbies started carrying snowboards as well, you know, and good friend of mine, Fran, Fran Richards, who's actually really well-known in, in sort of skate and, and snowboard world, was the guy working behind the counter. He was in college. And so, you know, I'm this 12-year-old kid or whatever, and got to be friends with a lot of people that, you know, we were actually more exposed to that side of it, the sort of business side, even at sort of that young age.
0: Yeah, well, well tell us more about that transition from being an active participant to being someone who's actually working in the industry.
2: It was... Just sort of a natural extension. You know, we were hanging out at the, the skate shop every day after school or whatever. Um, and then I, I remember, I think I was 12 or 13, down on the Pearl Street Mall, which is sort of the main outdoor mall, shopping mall thing in Boulder. This guy comes out of a mini mall thing, and he's just like, hey, you know, I was wearing like OP shorts whatever. He's like, I see you've you know, got like surf shorts or whatever. And he's like, we've got the real stuff, you know. And so um, go in the store and it was like the first time I had seen like long shorts and, and all this stuff. And, and it was a store called Wave Rave. You know, it's, it's well known now because it's, there's a shop in, in Mammoth. But um, back then it was, a, it was a little surf shop in, in Boulder. Um, got to know the owner Sandy and, and Brett Conrad, and tried to talk them kind of into carrying skateboards. And we were pushing them, my brother and I, and again, I'm 13, you know, I'm I'm this kid, pushing them like, oh, you got to have skateboards, you know, you got to, you know, you got to bring in snowboards, right? And so this is, I think they brought snowboards in like 1984, maybe something like that. And uh, then I started working there, you know, got a note from my mom or something like that. And I, I think I started working there when I just, when I was 14. You know, it, to be sort of involved in, you know, that's 80, 84, 85, 86 those times, you know, right when vert skating was coming on and, and all of that mm-hmm. stuff and the whole Bones Brigade yeah. that for, yeah. first round. But at the same time, you know, Colorado was sort of the middle ground in the snowboard side where, you know, Tom Sims and he was doing all of his stuff and, and Chuck Barfoot and that, those guys in, in Southern California. And then you had Jake doing his stuff in in the East Coast. And then you had, you know, the whole, like, winter sick thing coming out of uh, Dmitry Mavich, coming out of uh, Utah. But everything really converged sort of in Colorado. Oh, yeah. it, exactly. And it became sort of this crossroads of, of everything that was kind of yeah. going on. And so the, from that, the, you know, the early world championships started happening in Breckenridge. Breckenridge was the first mountain that really started allowing uh, snowboards at a, that was a major resort. There were a few little guys. But Breckenridge was kind of, you know, the first to really embrace it. It was really crazy. And to kind of go back to your question, what was it like? You know, you would see people driving up and you you see another car with a snowboard on top and and literally everybody would just kind of freak out because there were just so, so few people at that point.
1: I remember there being just that 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 up in arms feeling from the skiers. This this it was kind of like, you know, kids skateboarding on the sidewalk feeling of like yeah, you know, these these rebels, whippersnappers. And the, yeah, the the fights and the uh, that that's what I remember.
2: Yeah, and it, it wasn't it wasn't like that so much at first because I I remember again working at the shop and trying to be sort of this I, I don't know maybe it was I was younger and I wasn't sort of that that kid yet you know everyone was trying to be kind of this good ambassador for snowboarding like we really want to get on the mountain of course there there was always that sort of more rebel sort of DIY skate mentality to it. But there was a lot more of that, okay, you know what, like this could be legit. We could, you know, we could all coexist, you know. You
0: know. <laughs> well, well, how did, how did kind of being in, immersed in that DIY culture kind of lead to your path to design?
2: There weren't, there just weren't that many brands making, making apparel that we, that we were kind of carrying at the shop. And there was a local company called Quimbola Man, which was this uh, Quimbola is? Man. I don't, I don't even know this guy. Nate was making it, and, um, and it was you know local Colorado sort of handmade pants, and you could choose the colors for each of the patches and all this stuff. Um, and we went up to one of the worlds, the world championships or whatever, and I had taken a pair of those pants and I had in like pink paint marker. This was also back when neon was sort of like happening yeah. in a big way. And I put like Wave Rave on the knees and big logos. And people were asking me like, oh, wow, you have pants? You like Wave Rave pants? I'm like, well, I just painted them, you know. <laughs> um, but at the same yeah, I, yeah, I, I remember Dave Dowd, who was a, a pro at that time out of Boulder, he was on the Wave Rave team, um, had taken stickers and he put Wave on one glove and Rave on the other one. And he had gotten a photo in a magazine doing a hand plant. Mm-hmm. Um, and... The phone started ringing at, at the shop, like literally, and people were like, I want those gloves. Like, well, those are stickers. We'll send you a sticker, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Um, and that, yeah, exactly. And that really got uh, Brett, sort of, you know, one of the owners to start thinking about, oh, we should really start making clothes. And so we started making team jackets. And when I say we, he was making team jackets and I was helping, you know, give input and that kind of thing. And, and my brother and I and our friend Amani were working on graphics. Um, so it was just for the right place, right time.
1: Yeah, timing.
2: And and then Wave Rave became one of the early apparel brands, sort of in the snowboard world. But then this whole neon clown looking thing started evolving out of, out of snowboarding and, and, you know, like, big hair and pink lips and it just it was it was just kind of this this crazy thing and my brother and I who were really more these kind of like street rat punk rock skateboarder kids um we just like well I'm not I'm not really gonna wear pink pants like I'm not really that down with it and and um so we started uh you know being two years old or whatever and our friend Amani. they were doing a lot of graphic stuff. They had started a little t-shirt company and and, and all this stuff. And and we just thought, hey, well, why not take it all the way? We're doing this anyway. Why don't we make our own clothes? And at that point, um, there was a pretty big sewing sort of industry in in Colorado. So for us, it wasn't that foreign to be just like, ah, we can just do our own thing. And there was also that sewing manufacturing base. Um, There was like Mile High Textile, which had suplex you know i mean there was no waterproof breathable but there was nylon um and so we had resources yeah for sure and we we had our own little uh t-shirt printing press so we'd make our own you know twist was the brand and we did our t-shirts uh for ourselves but then we'd make money printing like frat and sorority t-shirts at the college um you know, to to kind of buy materials. Yeah, exactly. And it was just you know, you'd, you'd print another Grateful Dead T-shirt for somebody, and then you'd you know, then you'd take that money and you'd kind of parlay it into buying some fabric, and and um, or we use a lot of the roll ends of the rave stuff that wasn't pink. So it, that's that's kind of how we started. My brother had done a, a polar fleece uh, pullover that my mom sewed. You know. And it's just that that story, right? Of like yeah. doing a few things. Um, it was really different. The the old we wore around town. People were asking where we got it. That yeah. that kind of thing.
1: That was that the polar fleece was really really big back then. I yeah. remember. Uh, yeah, my first job was at a fabric store. 85 86 sure. and so same thing we were selling polar fleece by huge huge I, mean, well, I remember when we got the shipment in and they were huge huge bolts of this fleece and yeah. we could not keep it in between that and like printed textiles to make jams oh, yeah, sure, you know sure, for the shorts and stuff those were the those were the big things yeah. the polar fleece was it.
2: polar fleece was it and and it was um yeah and it was we made these big oversized hoodies with like floral lining in the hood and yeah. um you know, and my mom would sew the patch on and it wasn't quite straight. And so it was it was really, you know, it was kinda kitschy, it was cool. Right. And it was um and it was again, it was really just driven by us wanting to do our own thing.
1: I'm curious, too, because I know back then, like, when you talk about nylon suplex and everything that was going on, you get all the retro looks and whatnot because, you know, there were only a few colors available. Yeah. You know, you had your black for your ballistic, uh, you know, Taslin shoulders or whatnot. Um, But I also know that, like you were saying, in the 80s, there was this kind of, um, you know, early and mid-80s, a new infusion of brighter colors. Mm -hmm. So suddenly, everyone was embracing that, and you see the old outdoor and ski pieces that were suddenly you know pinks and teals and yellows and whatnot um how did that fabric the fabric color choices available to you affect what you did for you know early snowboarding we made a lot
2: of black i mean if you look back at what those people what people were doing back then they were taking all of those colors and mixing them Mm -hmm. like really crazy so oh yeah totally and there were still some you know i mean purple was right on the edge of acceptable for us Um, there was a, you know, like a teal color that was, again, people were usually sort of mixing those with brighter colors. And so we were taking the sort of neutral or, you know, it's just how we were treating it. We were treating things solids instead of really mixing them up with color. You know, we patch in black Cordura, like knees and butts and because since the subplex wasn't waterproof and Cordura was. You know, you just put that on the on the seats and on on the knees, mm-hmm. you know, and and so that's that was sort of what we were doing. We were just doing the best we could.
1: So, would you say that you were going a little more urban looking, or a little bit more like like dark and you know trying to distinguish from ski at all?
2: Oh yeah, a hundred percent. Oh yeah, I mean we were one hundred percent trying to not be ski, which was very difficult because, you know, from, you know, I mean we we're definitely not ski. We were more oversized. We were boxier. We weren't sort of, you know, ski look at that point it was very V shaped, like big shoulders. I think you could actually get shoulder pads and jackets, right? <laughs> um, you know, we were, we were totally going against it, you know, and which was sort of a blessing and a curse because all the kids loved it. But when we started getting actual orders, you know, we, we loaded up the the van and went to SIA, to the SIA show in Vegas. And, Picked up a Japanese distributor, like right off the bat. Um, That's when snowboarding was just starting to really hit in Japan. Um, And we picked up a lot of shops, kind of like we went and found that, hey, we weren't the only ones kind of doing this because there was no internet, Mm -hmm. right? There was no, there was no real way besides like looking at magazines to know, are we the only, yeah, are we the only ones out there, you know, kind of doing this? And, And there were a lot of people that were doing it all over the place. So we got all these orders and we had no money to make them. You know, so of course it's like, oh, what do you do? I'll go to the bank. I remember the banker, you know, telling us as he's turning us down, you know, he's, he said something like, you know, well, I, after actually asking us if we had any collateral, like cattle, like literally this is what we were, <laughs> I'm not even kidding. Like livestock, you know? Um, and they, and they, uh, he just said, well, I, I hope you have a rich uncle. And that was kind of the last words as we were getting kicked out of the bank, you know? Um, and so from there, it, was, it became this constant struggle, honestly, um, where it was much more about almost trying to chase money and raise money all the time than it was about, you know, paying attention to product or anything like that. Which, I mean, it wasn't like our line was that big. Um, but it was, it was a struggle. It's an
1: interesting perspective. You know, we, we're hitting this a lot as we talk to people, is that memory of... Um you know, what wasn't then when you talk about internet and how it, how easy it is to find information now. Oh, yeah. Um, it, it's amazing how things got around before, but that the fact that, yes, you'd have to see them on TV or in the newspaper or hear something or somebody has to, you know, show you music through handing you a mixtape they make sure. or whatnot, yeah. um, it doesn't seem that long ago, but things have changed a lot. Oh,
2: changed, changed a lot, you know, and it was interesting because we were – um, because we were sort of making it up as we went along. And, and you talk to people now who look back at, at sort of what we had done with, with Twist and the things we did are things that have really come around with sort of the digital age, right? But we had the apparel thing going. We were doing film, video, production. Mm-hmm. We We had sort of built this little archetype of fashion, music, art, lifestyle, culture, which really had almost nothing to do with snowboarding,
0: but I think and I think that's how culture was disseminated back then. It, you it know, was. I remember like, oh, uh, you know, our friend from high school or whatever like the new he has the new bones brigade tape let's mm-hmm. go over to his house after school and yeah. watch it on his dad's vcr or whatever and yeah. it's like oh and you and you're soaking up everything like yeah. from the clothes they're wearing to the stickers that are on their yeah, boards the music, to the yeah, music sure. yeah everything
2: yeah. and that's what we were doing you know since there was no internet and there was no way to to sort of disseminate what we were doing we were we started a magazine we did the videos and we you know we'd produced videotapes and we'd send them out with our orders we did the magazine we sent that out um we did limited edition you know art prints and all this different different you know sort of all these different things to because the magazines weren't covering what we were doing at that point because we had rebelled so fully against sort of mainstream snowboarding at that point and the whole neon thing and you know and sort of ushered in this whole skate driven new school mentality and in and snowboarding and that was you know nobody else was covering it so we literally had to do it ourselves we had to make the magazine we had to make the videos we had to do all the and make we made mixtapes literally you know mm-hmm. d- down to that point.
1: That's almost like I mean I, I like I said I think we forget about that. It, I mean it's nice to talk about this because it's that memory of going oh yeah like and and you're looking back on it and you're seeing the value yeah. of doing that or the importance of why you had to do it when when you're doing it back then you don't necessarily you're not necessarily thinking about that but that's almost come around like. Mm-hmm that's what people are doing again now yeah. in trying to create storytelling and sure. identities in a whole new way. Yeah.
2: And it was a, it was a good way for us to kind of try to one up everybody else that was around us. Right. Cause it was just like, Oh, you know, it was really funny. Um, Dave England, you know, who's one of the jackass guys, he was one of my roommates back then. And um, he was doing all that stuff anyway, but he had started the world's smallest snowboard magazine called skin tight. And it was like, Two and a half inches tall by an inch and a half wide, or something like that, you know. To, um, and you know, and actually, it goes the other way around. We started Crucial Leisure, which was this giant tabloid-sized thing, and it was—we always claimed it was the world's largest snowboard magazine, just like literally in size. But it was just kind of this joke. And so he decided he was going to start the world's smallest snowboard magazine and started Skin Tight. And so it was like, it, but it was fun, you know. And that, the whole snowboard industry was was much more like that to a point. At that point, people were sort of pushing each other to progress and sharing ideas. it wasn't a it wasn't a business by by any means
0: and at that point while you're you know while you're trying to you know drive what you're doing forward without the help of the banks mm-hmm. um, how did you get better at what you were doing?
2: Uh, trial and error, you know I mean literally and looking at sort of other things that were going on I mean. It was a really, it's just such a strange time because like you're saying, all the things that we take for granted now, we didn't take for granted at all. I mean, it wasn't even, it didn't exist. You know, you look at things like pit zips and powder skirts and, and actual waterproof breathable fabrics. I mean, that stuff was really just starting to happen a little bit in mountaineering, even in ski wear, there were, you know, some of that was, was happening a bit, but it wasn't like it is today. And so you would, you would just have to sort of discover you'd have to see what other people are doing you know i think we did the first pit zips in a snowboard jacket i know we did the first waist skater. the biggest thing we ever did was we made women's specific snowboard clothing yeah. and that was like twist was like the first brand that actually had women's jackets and women's pants you know which it, it didn't hurt that my wife now wife was my girlfriend then she was mm-hmm. you know, that's how i i met her like i sponsored her you know, and she was wearing like all the guys' stuff, and we're like, Oh, you know, maybe you should have a you know, and so we kind of we pushed that too. And then it was like but now it's just like, well, of course women would have pants, right? right. But back then they were just wearing like big men's stuff mm-hmm. and it was it was kinda crazy. So it was it was like that, you know. We were chasing production, we couldn't figure out where to do it. So um, we had heard that North Face had moved over, everything overseas. So we thought, ah, let's just go to San Francisco and go find so many factories, and go, you know. So we literally moved here. We moved our whole office. Everybody, we all moved here.
0: So was that so was that specifically to find factories that were ex North Face factories?
2: It, that was the one of the big motivating factors. Plus the fact that we were all kids from Boulder, Colorado, who knew there was a big world out there and wanted to see it. So yeah, we actually moved the. Move the company out here.
1: Well, that's another thing that people do forget um, is becoming more aware to folks as they talk about a Made in America movement is that um, things did move offshore not that long ago and yeah. really, really fast.
2: Really fast. And and it's funny because we got here and for some reason we thought, oh, yeah, we're this big snowboard. At that point, we were actually one of the main brands in snowboarding. We were second- Actually, not quite yet, but we became second in specialty store to to Burton, you know, with Twist, and we came here and the, we couldn't find we couldn't find anything. Everything we made, uh, we made in, in like South Central, LA, and, and we were living in in San Francisco. We kind of somewhat lived at the Chateau Marmont in in Hollywood because it, it was before it had gotten bought, and it was like this derelict old sort of hotel, and, and so we were like taking fabric and driving it from you know to the the guy you know we'd make the patterns and we at the pattern maker then we'd go and and another guy would do the cutting and then you'd take you go and get the cut fabric and you'd take it to the woman who sold, who made wedding dresses and and Halloween costumes and she'd sew snowboard pants like in South Central LA so it was really it was really crazy because there was no the like, you know, there was no, where would you look? The yellow pages? I mean, that's what we would do, yeah. literally. And so we spent, I think, two years doing that and almost ended us again. I mean, we almost ended six or seven times, you know, But and then um, through one of our distributors at that point introduced us to a, a person in, in Italy, of all places. And this is before kind of we even really knew that we could go to Asia and so we made all of our stuff in in Italy for 2 years which was great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. That was quite a step up from from South Central yeah. but um How'd that do for your quality too. Oh, I mean it, of course, it yeah. revolutionized everything we were we were doing. Yeah. Um we had also started a sunglass part of the line at the same time that we were doing with uh with a subsidiary of, of Bosch and Lom and that was really going crazy too and we were uh we were in Sunglass Hut, like all doors, and that, at that point, yeah. that was, you know, that was like the pinnacle of selling sunglasses. Like now, there's a billion sunglass stores, but that was that was actually cool. And because we had sort of the art component with Evan and, and his quality of work and everything, and and our sort of design sensibilities, we were the only brand they'd let do their own in store branding. We were just a totally different sort of thing, and it's, I think it's because we had all of the sides of the, the art and music and, and lifestyle and, and streetwear and whatever. We were sort of doing all those things and they, they just, they liked it. So. And
1: you can't fake that kind of stuff.
2: And back then it was all so new for people. It was really, it was a, again, you know, just interesting time because you could, it, you didn't know how to do anything, but you could do anything, right? Like anything you thought you could do, you just go out and figure out a way to do it. And there was literally nobody telling us we couldn't.
1: And probably no uh, job descriptions no. And, and whatnot. Like, I'm thinking um, you're running Twist. How did your own process of creating new products, designing them, those types of things, how did that start to evolve? Or-
2: yeah, I mean, honestly, um, when we were doing Twist, it was sort of a... It wasn't designed by committee, but we didn't make that many things. But everybody would kind of put their, their ideas in and we were, you know, actually living it at the same time. We were snowboarding all the time and, and our team riders were, some of them were actually I think older than us, <laughs> you know what I mean? So we were really, I mean, we were, we were basically more team riders, just we would go back to the office and make stuff and they would go out and, and ride it. Everything was just like a kind of a fluid process. It was very loose and we just sketched stuff and, and it was all fax or FedEx. And it,
1: it just comes, and, and the ideas would just come up through the group
2: yeah and and again it would come from music or it would come from street culture, it would come from art, those kinds of things and and it was there was a whole new sort of generation of people, you know the gen x whatever thing, and grunge was all coming in and and so there were you know there were a lot of things that you could sort of key off, but again, it was all driven out of really out of skateboarding i mean that was the sort of impetus, and that was where it all came from, as things got more technical, I really liked that um i really like sort of problem solve solving design Mm -hmm. um and especially from the fact that i was such a avid sort of user um and i was always having problems like how could i like you know like you'd fix the problems and that was that was design there's that
0: there's that diy i'm a user i'm having this problem i'm gonna figure out a solution to the problem so i can go out and have more fun you know on the mountain versus like, oh, I'm the designer, and here I get the brief from my product manager that says I, I got to do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Like, those are two kind of fundamentally opposing views to creating product. Yeah. And uh, and you probably worked in both of those
2: environments. I didn't even know what a design brief was until a few years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but honestly, there, there were no design briefs. Yeah. It was like, well, we kind of need a jacket with a hood. Okay, well, can we make one with a pull over and a full zip? Yeah. Well, we kind of need something that's warm. Tarquin Robbins, one of our writers, came in with a Chicago Bulls starter jacket. So like, I want this, you know. It's like, okay. So we made basically the first puffy jacket in, in snowboarding. I mean, literally, that's a, that was that was the brief, Right. you know. Right. I, we had I, I remember Dave England um, went on a trip to like Alaska or something, and he went in, in some samples we had made, and, and the fabric company had, had messed up. All of, and this was like early waterproof breathable days. And they had the whole coating side. And, and, you know, it was fine when it got wet. It was fine when it got cold. When it got cold and wet, it would disintegrate. And he was in Alaska, right? And he's, he came in and he like threw the jacket at us. He's like, I'm done. I can't take this, you know? And, and those are the hard lessons you'd learn, right? Yep. Yeah. Um, and those hurt. Like, you know, Dave was a great friend and I didn't really want him to not be on twist anymore. But the product was, was not good at that point, you know, or that particular set that he had was really not good. So we fixed the problem. It was all trial and error. We had the clothing line. That's when we were sort of second in to, to Burton in, in specialty. We had the sunglass thing going. We had, through all of the earlier dealings, trying to find the money, um, forced to make choices along the way I mean everybody is I guess and and uh, we didn't have a lot of options and we ended up being financed from a company in in Japan who was also our distributor at that point we had a party with interview magazine um in Soho and like this big relaunch and it was this just crazy party whatever and like we literally thought we were like on top of the world right and that was in like 97 and and um that was when the Japanese economy Mm -hmm. really fell apart and there was a publicly traded company and and the you know our brand was sort of a pet project of the president's son and we get a call you know literally 2 days after this party and like we're literally on top right and a call saying hey you know uh you know that million dollars you've you've burned through this year to get to this point just pay it back and you know we tried but we can't invest in your company anymore and and it was like it was like that kind of a phone call yeah and it and it went from from that to literally nothing in they gave us like a week to come up with the money and in the end we we traded the uh the trademarks for our personal guarantees that my brother and i had signed um which it's funny to laugh about now at the time it was it was pretty hard lesson right and we didn't have a lot of a lot of choices and so it it, you know it forced us to sort of get our act together and I, I was on the, the board of directors at SIA at that point. It was me and, and Jake Burton, and we got to know each other and that, and that kind of thing. And and so a couple of weeks after the whole twist thing fell apart, we were on a plane to, to Vermont to go talk to them about maybe designing. And so that's sort of what the next step was for Troy and I. We decided, hey, you know, let's let's do this squad on our own, basically. Burton's far from a corporate thing, but for us, it was the most corporate thing we had ever seen, but it was like this corporate structure run by people just like us. Right. <laughs> so it was, it was really interesting. So it still wasn't quite a glimpse into the real world, but we kind of thought it was, <laughs> which was hilarious. Um, and that was, that was an interesting time because that was a time that we, you know, where the, the structure you're talking about, you know, it's not that it wasn't fun, but it, it wasn't what we were used to. Burton was really, as a brand, you know, where we were kind of the, the renegade little upstart Underdog sort of DIY lifestyle company, they were a lot more structured and they were a lot more, they were way more advanced, obviously, than we were. Mm -hmm. And they had, you know, people in positions doing roles, you know, and we were just like doing whatever. Um, So, but that was cool for us because it was a chance for us to kind of, or at least for me, to affect change on a bigger, grander sort of scale and a global scale. When we got to Burton, being able to sort of speak on the team rider level and, and work directly with the riders was, was something that we had a really, we were really good at. And Burton was actually really supportive as a company, but that's when we started uh, Analog and started that portion of, of the brand. And that was something that we had come up with and came up with the name, to the whole thing, pitched it to them, and, and they kind of lukewarm about it, but then the riders really bought into it. And, and Greg Dakishin, who's the head of Global Creative now, me and my brother and Greg basically figured out this idea and, and yeah, and we, we were able to like affect snowboarding at a much bigger level. And that was something that was, it was interesting just to see how that sort of happened when you actually do have some resources.
1: I was going to ask you about that because you have know, that, that feeling of, um, you know, working so hard, like building twist up and having such success and uh, getting to that point and then hitting that low, um, what that felt like then from running your own company then to working for somebody else that could you know if there was any disappointment in there but it sounds like you just went in with that entrepreneurial mind, mindset and just found opportunity
2: yeah but the disappointment came more in the fact that the things that really made us happy and really drove us to to do what we did we found out most of that actually didn't have anything to do with the design and the product so much in, in the the purity of that as it was in in speaking to consumers and shops and, and distributors and and really being out there and and being able to sort of champion the product and then also have the instant feedback and from the team writers or from stores and and you know I mean we we did everything from making all the product to manning the trade show booth and Doing rep tours with our reps and going and going store to store with bags of clothes and selling, and that was stuff that we weren't able to do at at Burton because it was structured. They had a sales team, they had a sales force that they were way better than we were, right? But it was something that we found out pretty quickly that we really, you know, really missed. And and so much. And you're asking earlier, you know, about you know where do the ideas come from and those kinds of things. Um, So much of that actually comes from being out there, you know, not not so much in actually snowboarding, but really, you know, learning a lot about, well, it's one thing to make a jacket. It's another thing to to be able to have that jacket sell. So many in, important lessons are learned not in just, you know, anybody can design a jacket, right? But it, it to sort of hit on all parts of a brand from the right product to the right price to the right distribution to the right marketing to get people into, to buy into the brand vision and want to actually give you money. I mean that's hey. <laughs> but, but that, you know that's a big part of it and I think a lot of that in the design process these days because you know we were forced to do all those parts it wasn't um, it wasn't it's always fun holistic. but you have a holistic yeah of course yeah. you do and and so much of that really came back down to what are the right things to do when you're designing a piece or when you're choosing a fabric or ch- doing all these things what are the things that are actually really important? And to a brand success, and what are the things like an extra little pocket here or there that just honestly, like you don't even show it in a presentation, and people can get very focused on these micro details that that can get frustrating too as a designer because people don't care about that stuff. Um, But for me, it was it was an interesting, it was really an interesting sort of experience and learning to treat sort of features and performance and as a totally different component than, than necessarily styling and taking every piece that we make and, and giving it the same functionality and then offering that functionality in ten different flavors. I mean, that was kind of, you know, that's almost how you can kind of look at it. The core functionality and performance always needs to be there, and you can't really sacrifice that. You know, you can you can make that work with any sort of styling, but you can't really sacrifice that. Um, because if this stuff doesn't work at the end of the day, then you're also not going to sell right and and these days, especially with the instant gratification and feedback and Amazon and all the things that you know um, that the internet brings, um, that happens so fast now. Mm-hmm. so you kind of have to you know to be I think really successful, you have to sort of have a basic understanding of all all of those factors and not just, oh hey, I can make a." Cool looking jacket.
1: Well, you were. There was a a period of time there where everyone was really that 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 learning curve was. Everyone was, uh, the technology was coming into play, the materials, mm-hmm. the manufacturing, yeah. all of these things were growing together sure. to hit a plateau of the ultimate product to you know the state of the art. Yeah, and then you get design kicks in mm-hmm. to do the many different flavors. Yeah, sure. You know.
2: Yeah, and and actually at that time that's a good point because. Um, There were these milestones that, and things were changing technologically from fabrics to trims to to the construction methods to all these different things. I mean, there were the first year was 2K or 3K waterproof and not breathable, right? And then that that was after three ply suplex, right? Mm -hmm. You know, three ply suplex was a big deal. Um, Cordura was a big deal, you know? And then every year, like, oh, somebody's got 5K. Woo, you know, and yeah. then like, oh, somebody's got eight k, somebody's got ten k, fifteen. when's it gonna stop? You know, stop the madness. Twenty, yeah, exactly, exactly. And so um, there were ways to sort of differentiate yourself with product. It's like where, buying a digital camera. You know, oh yeah. You oh oh totally. Yeah totally. And and now things have really shifted where everybody can make a, a decent jacket that keeps you warm and dry. Where before that wasn't the case. Now that everybody can do that. So now, you know uh, shifting and looking at your first product of your company is your brand now, okay. and that 's the thing you know if you can 't people to get people to sort of buy into your vision as a brand they no, they 'll never buy your product. The problem has changed, mm-hmm.
1: and I think for a while there the solution didn 't yeah, you know everyone was still going you know trying to solve. Uh, one-up on and and solve a problem that felt, started to feel uh, to a lot of us designers as something that's been solved. Yeah. So then we went looking for a new problem.
2: And things have, by virtue of that, stagnated a lot. Things have not changed that much in 10, 15 years. I mean, honestly. There hasn't been a new, like, waterproof zipper, right, in a long time. No. You know, and that sort of changed, yeah, that sort of changed everything, right? And then now everything's got waterproof zippers on it. And everything looks the same. And you, you hold up 10 brands and you really don't know what, you know.
1: And everyone's looking for the next big thing. Yeah. What is the next big thing? That's been, I, I, and unfortunately for, for much of my design career, that has been the big question. What is the next big thing? Design is the next big thing. And, and it's, it's, it's impossible to do that, really, you know, unless you really have a serious uh, problem to solve. Mm-hmm. So it really has been more of a problem of identity um and uh and sales yeah. it feels like
2: and acceptance too i mean you you can't go so far out of what's sort of considered norm right to mm-hmm. or Absolutely. else it, it you know which is i mean so everybody's gotten sort of in this culture of being safe yeah. mm-hmm. and really relying on on sales marketing and distribution um because product is all very very similar yeah. is, even though brands will never tell you that it, but it's it's all coming from the same stuff, made at the yeah. same places, you know? Yeah. And there's, yeah, there's of course, everybody's got their own little spin on things. But, no, and, and, and that's, that's the best time, right? I mean, the, the problem, too, is designers, you know, since they don't have that drive so much and they're looking at other brands as this sort of state-of-the-art, mm-hmm. there's not that necessarily the... the I don't know if they even, if people even know that you can push just because it's, you know, it's like, oh, that one's got pit zips Yeah, it's venting, you know. I You know, I, I don't know. I guess I'm, I'm kind of speaking from a different perspective than a lot of people, but it just feels like everything has gotten sort of marginalized into the same piece, and there's so many things that actually could be done.
1: Well, and the uh, the desire to push or the um, teaching people to push, you know, I think there's something about it's like raising kids, you know, and, and giving them that, um, you know, that, that ability to ask questions, question things, mm-hmm. not ask questions, but question things and rebel against things. Yeah. And I think there's some of that has been a little bit, uh, um, you know, breeded out of some of the design culture mm-hmm. in terms of um, pushing, pushing, and pushing. And then you hit so many walls that, you know, it doesn't get through. You just stop pushing.
2: It used to be the more risk and the, the more you could change something. That, that was the, the thing that generated sales and now if you don't generate sales that's not successful
1: yeah
2: right exactly so success is a different is a different measure, a different yeah. measure now yeah. a completely different measure
1: so as a designer i mean you know like it really felt like you just grew up as basically an entrepreneur without maybe realizing that but um falling into really a design role mm-hmm. um in many different ways designing a business designing product designing graphics designing a culture mm-hmm. um you know a designer designs every every piece of it um you know where does a designer take that when you when you fall into these these pieces
2: you know i've always been really interested in in all things design when we were doing the the Burton stuff that was very seasonal because we weren't doing the sales and marketing and all those things that it left a big chunk of time sort of in the summer that there wasn't a whole lot going on so a good friend of mine that had run the twist store in Boulder she closed the store and and opened a restaurant and she had us do the design, everything from graphics to interior to, you know, furniture, like the whole, the whole thing. Um, And so that was a really different thing than designing another jacket or another pant or, or something like that. And so that's the thing, you've got to constantly be sort of looking outside and I've done that, you know, throughout my career, whether by default, because there's literally nobody else in the room to do it or somebody quit or somebody, you know, was asked to leave or who knows what the, the thing was. And, and that's how over the years I, I started doing the hard goods. So I was doing, you know, snowboard design. I was doing bindings. I was doing, you know, you have to push yourself. I mean, nobody else is going to do it. You know, that kind of became my hobby. I mean, of course, I still skateboard, I still snowboard, I still do all those things, but my hobby became making brands or making products or yeah. or sort of pushing outside of that.
1: When I went to school, I think most of us went through, uh, those of us went through apparel design went through traditional fashion design programs. You know, no computers, all hands-on. Right. Yeah. And um, now you have you know merchandising programs, you have industrial design, apparel design, soft goods, footwear, um, there's all types of education uh, pathways yeah. that'll lead you into that specialization um, what do you think about that i mean do you do you ever feel like because I do feel like a a good designer can design a lot of things mm-hmm. because it's a process it's a mindset um, it's how you approach problem solving and creative new ideas
2: mm-hmm. well i think i honestly um, i I think that maybe that molds designers into assuming a role that they don't even miss necessarily know they can break themselves out of. I mean, I and I fell into that, too. I never had—I had exactly zero formal design education. In fact, when, when my brother and, and Amani were in the design program at University of Colorado, they were teaching them how to do— uh, Layout, ad layout, and stuff with Ruby Lith and Letra Set mm-hmm, type, yeah. and all hand done. Mm-hmm. And I was about to join the program too. And I'm like, what is, I like, and we had already talked my dad into buying a Macintosh yeah. for his so design was, business yeah. two years prior. Yeah. So they, it was antiquated already, right? Yeah. Um, and so, but I, I fell into that when I actually did start really designing apparel. I'd always be like, oh, well, my brother's the graphic designer. Like, I can't do that. I, you know, I'm not a graphic designer. And then, I tried, right? And, and like you said, if you're, if you sort of have that that skill to design something, it doesn't really matter. I mean, if it's a restaurant or a jacket or a graphic or whatever, so the rules still the same rules. Yeah, there's
0: is. a lot of fundamental principles yeah. that still apply, no matter what it is you're actually yeah, it's, producing.
2: It's totally, it's totally true. And and actually, if you break some of those things down into the fundamental basic pieces, I guess, you know, you look at something like a restaurant. And that's actually probably easier to design than a collection because you have four walls, a ceiling, a floor, and a couple. You know, it's, it's sort of pick something and, and it's repeat, 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 repeat mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Um, and that maybe is oversimplifying. And maybe that's why I'm not a restaurant designer by trade because I'm maybe not that good at it. But the restaurant that we did is still there 20 years later and it's still cranking, you know. So it's, it's – I think people put themselves in, in their own sort of box – and I think that that's what maybe design education these days is, is sort of so specialized that it, it maybe isn't giving the broad enough view, and it pe- puts people in a box of oh I'm I'm an accessories designer. It's like well good, and I'm sure you're very good at it. But there's a big world out there, and there are a lot of other things you could you could become a better accessories designer by trying to do some graphic design or, or you know that kind of thing. And and I I don't think people should necessarily limit themselves. I think that's important for people to keep in mind that there really are no rules
1: yeah and i think the thing about uh, designers is that they're able to you know you're solving a problem and it's about how do you go find out what you need to know you know as a as an apparel designer if somebody wants me to design a chair you know i know what i don't know Mm -hmm. and i know where to find you know what I need to know to design a chair. Yeah, sure. um, it's not going to be as good as if I designed chairs for 20 years and, yeah. ex- and keep layering upon my knowledge, yeah. but I can design or a new chair.
2: <laughs> maybe you'll take a different, totally different approach and maybe it'll be better. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that's what i found in some of the yeah. stuff that I've done, that it's actually been really beneficial to have that sort of design fundamental baseline, right? And apply that knowledge to a totally different... category. And, um, you know, at least in my mind, I've been successful. I don't know if the, you know, the world would prove that out in, in volume of sales, but I've made some pretty cool stuff.
1: Well then tell us a bit, a little bit about, uh, your, your current business of nightmare snowboards and how that's, uh, uh,
2: yeah, it's just like influenced
1: by all this.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's, it's, it's funny. It's, um, I I ran into these two guys in, in Colorado when I was, still working on sort of on the tech nine side and that was all winding down. And I, I was working on this museum project thing I was doing and these guys had bought uh snowboard presses and all this stuff out of a storage locker in summit County in Colorado because there used to be a lot of snowboard man- manufacturers there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they actually had these old bases, like Sims bases from you know the 80s. So w- walk into this snowboard factory I'd heard about, and it was like walking into 1992 or 1993. Mm-hmm. I mean, these guys, Joe and, and Tom, had started this, this brand called Nightmare and, and just thought that every snowboard brand was running that way, where they bought some equipment and they were physically making snowboards. And it was just this total circus like craziness going on you know it's like skate ramp and and you know kids drinking beer in the corner and and, and you know just the whole thing it was just like what yeah, twist yeah. was and they were doing it themselves because that's what how they thought it was done and i just i like totally fell in love with it and and, and they asked me to sort of be involved because they knew i had been around snowboarding for a long time and, and could help them hopefully point them in the right direction um, and so that's, I mean, that's what it is. It's, and again, it's, it's going back to the super DIY skate-driven roots that I think has also been lost. A lot of that passion, you know, if you ask, you know, what is snowboarding now? Snowboarding is something that is inspired by snowboarding, where when I was starting, snowboarding was something that was inspired by skateboarding and right. culture, right. not inspired by itself. Right. And that's a huge point of differentiation. And so this is a chance to sort of take that raw, side of it back and do it for the kids because now we can actually speak directly to them. Now we don't also have to wait for a retailer to necessarily love what we're doing and buy into that to be able to get that to the kids. We can just go straight to the kids and they can come straight to us. And so that's been the biggest sort of change. You know, it keeps my design skills sort of sharp and, and relevant because I'm still hanging out with 20 year old kids you know um, and nothing keeps you yeah it, it helps a lot of course and, it, and if you want to stay relevant in, in everything you do you know nothing does that better. It's like yeah. these
1: guys just resurrected the lifestyle. It's
2: Yeah it, it, I call it twist part two because it, it kind yes. of is you know and I spent you know so many years trying to replicate that mm-hmm. and there, there's no way you can but with these guys because it is totally they're just as green sort of at, at the business side of it as we were when we were starting Twist, it, it's really refreshing, and so the, everything they're doing is kind of for the right reason, yeah. right? And it's yeah. pure, and and they How do. Much cattle do they have? They they've got no cattle, you know. <laughs> so if anybody out there wants to invest in a little tiny snowboard company, uh, give me a call. Mm-hmm. And that's so much of the the enjoyment and, and thrill and kind of the whole thing is going from nothing to having something not just the having of something part. It's that journey in between. Yeah. So.
0: Well, thank you. I think that's a really good place to wrap yeah. it up.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much Absolutely. for coming. We're always so happy to talk with you. I, there's so much knowledge and, and experience that you have that, uh, I think our audience will be really, really interested and excited to hear. Too. So. Great. I hope so.
2: Thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Thank you. This podcast
0: is a project of Structure Event, the creative conference for the active outdoor and urban design industry. For more information about the podcast or the conference, check out our website at StructureEvent.com.
1: If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a rating on iTunes and tell your friends. Thanks for listening.